Good morning. The title of our message is The End of History. Why would anyone entitle a message with that kind of a phrase after such a wonderful time of worship? It's not very encouraging, is it? The end of history. The end of history can mean the, how is it all going to conclude? How will it all come to culmination? Or it can also mean what's the purpose of history? Where is it all going? And we'll talk about both meanings this morning. Maybe you've done a, a brief overview of what happened in 2015. If you've done that, it may have been a bit overwhelming for you. You know, there's been quite a bit of terrorism. You think of Paris, you think of Tunisia, Kenya, uh, Jakarta this last week. Civil wars, places like Ukraine, Burundi, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, of course. Maybe you think of natural disasters. Uh, The earthquake in Nepal, which was massive, or the earthquake in Japan. Even Vancouver Island had an earthquake, and we felt the effects of it. Extreme weather all over the world, global warming. There's 60 million people displaced in the world today as we speak. Economic woes, you know, Greece almost brought the Eurozone down. And then, of course, the price of oil fell, and that had a tremendous impact on our Canadian economy, and the stock market has fallen. So, is this just all random? (laughs) Is someone actually guiding history? Does someone have his hand on history? Maybe you saw the story this week, the story of Pastor Lim in uh, North Korea. And he was imprisoned in December for crimes against the state. He faces life in prison, hard labor. This last week he was interviewed by CNN And he mentioned that he is now doing eight hours of work a day, six days a week, digging holes in an orchard in the labor camp. The spokesperson for the the light Korean Presbyterian Church in Mississauga, she said that we believe that Pastor Lim has time to meditate and that he's meditating on what's important to him. So if you were in his place, what would you meditate on? What would you think about? What would you think about your own life, your family, your church, the nation, the two Koreas, the future of the world? Is, is his life in the hands of Kim Jong-un? Is it in the hands of the North Korean leader? Or is it in the hand of another? In whose hand is History. In whose hands do we rest? Is, does someone have his hand on your life or on my life? Where's this all going? What's it all about? Well, I believe today's text will help us answer those questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just a wonderful time of worship in your presence. Thank you for the truths that we were able to sing. Thank you for giving us life. Every breath depends on you. And I thank you, God, that You have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word. And I pray again, Lord, that you would teach us. As you taught your first disciples, Jesus, teach us today by your spirit. May we understand your word. May we know how to apply it to our lives. May your, only your word, your truth remain with your people. May nothing I say stray from your word. It's your truth, Lord, that will free us, that will make us like you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people, strengthen them, spur them on. For your glory, Jesus, I pray. 
Amen. So we're in Daniel chapter 2, and if you've got the English Standard Version, then it's page 738. We studied the first 30 verses last week, and we'll complete the chapter today, beginning in verse 31. But just to review quickly, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and it left him sleepless. He was greatly disturbed. So much so that he called all of the wise men of Babylon together, and he asked them, I want you not only to interpret the dream, but to recount the dream itself back to me. And the wise men of Babylon said, this is impossible. (laughs) This doesn't happen. Dreams are with the gods, and the gods, they don't dwell among us, and they don't speak. And so he, in his anger, he says, I will execute all of you. Daniel hears about this. He, of course, is included in the wise men. He asks for a time from the king. He asks for a time. And he calls his friends together, his three friends, and they lie prostrate before the Lord and they cry out to God for compassion. And in a vision of the night, God reveals the the dream, not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. And he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's presence and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, he does this boldly, graciously, but he says, hey, if you're relying on the Babylonian gods and Babylonian wisdom for the the dream and its interpretation, you're not going to get it. If you look to me for wisdom, I don't have it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known the dream and its interpretation so that the king will know what is to come. Nebuchadnezzar is probably quite happy with that because he's interested in understanding the dream so that he can solidify his reign. And so the dream has not only been revealed, but its interpretation. But God is doing it for another reason. God is revealing that he has his hand over all of history, that he knows where history is going, that God knows very well what the purpose of history is, and he will accomplish his purposes. So let's read what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31 of chapter 2. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So why does Nebuchadnezzar lose his sleep? Well, he sees this image. It's huge. It's gigantic. It's dazzling in its brightness. And the word used for image is something that would represent a king or a god. Intuitively, he knows that this dream, it has something to do with power, something to do with kingdoms, and things are changing. So who is he in the dream? Is he the statue? Is he the gold? That that stone, where does it come from? And why does the statue crumble? Why does it crumble and become chaff? And why is it blown away? Will his kingdom just disappear? Will it be blown away? And so... (laughs) Being troubled, he wants to know the the, the interpretation of this dream. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar, his number one purpose in life is rebuilding the Babylonian kingdom. He wants to restore it to its former glory. That's what he's about. 
History tells us that his first years of reign were actually quite difficult. He struggled to solidify his reign. History tells us that he was obsessed with power, with fame, with influence. And as we read through Daniel's, Daniel chapters 1 and 2, this becomes evident. Chapter 1. He can tell people what they should eat. Chapter 2. He can demand answers from the wise men. If they don't give the answer that he wants, he can execute them. He has enormous power. It's about him. He gets the special treatment. He not only gets the royal food, he gets everyone serving him. People have to honor them when they come into his presence. People say to him, oh king, live forever. They worship him. It's about him, his power. But in these chapters, you also see the insecurity, right? He has a bad dream, he can't sleep. People don't give him the answers that he wants. He thinks they're deceiving him. He threatens to execute them. See, he's driven by insecurity and fear. He's obsessed with power, fame, and influence. His desire to control the empire, to control his own life and the lives of others, it just reveals deep-seated fears and insecurities. And when he's not getting his way, it comes out in anger. As I observed this, I thought about my own life and what's driving me? (laughs) Am I being driven by insecurity, by fear? Is it coming out in anger? Think about your own week. Our emotions, you know, they betray what really is going on inside of us. Why is Nebuchadnezzar so deeply insecure and fearful? Because he has no knowledge of a God who is sovereign over all things, that is good and loving, that he can rest in his care. He has no understanding of a God like that. Do we? If my life is marked by insecurity, by fear, when I'm not getting my way, when things are not working the way that I think they should, and I respond in anger... That tells me that I really don't believe in God's sovereignty, in his hand over my life, in his goodness, in his love, and his faithfulness. Daniel goes on, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things." And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. 
And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So the God of heaven, the all-wise, the all-powerful one, he has given something to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that word gave. The Lord gave King Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave Daniel favor and compassion. The Lord gave Daniel and his friends wisdom and knowledge. Things have come from the Father's hand. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize it, but actually the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, these have been given into his hands by the Father. Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's him. His kingdom now stretches from Elam, that's modern-day Iran, all the way to Egypt. It's a massive empire. His city, the city of Babylon, is the most impressive city in the world, the largest city that has ever been in all of history. It's surrounded by walls. It's fortified, massive gates dedicated to different gods. There's all kinds of temples, scores of temples in his city to different gods. He's built a bridge that spans the Euphrates River. So now the city is on both sides of the river. One of the seven wonders of the world is in his city, the Hanging Gardens. Unshakable kingdom. Impressive kingdom. What he doesn't understand is that God has given this to him. God in his sovereignty grants authority to human beings to govern people and steward the earth. God grants authority to human beings to govern people and steward the earth. That has been since Adam. That was true for Nebuchadnezzar. It's true for us. We have all been given something to steward, something to govern. Whether it be your own life or family or ministry or business or school classroom, or university department, whatever it is, God has given you something to govern. And do you do that out of a place of insecurity and fear? And when you don't get your own way, does it come out in anger, or do you do that out of a place of rest? Because you recognize that God actually gave it to you, (laughs) and that you're secure in his hand, and he's asked you to steward it for a time. With what perspective do you lead? King David understood this. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, second part of verse 10. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So what has God given you? To govern, to steward. You need to walk with an awareness of that and do that under God's strong hand and do that out of a place of peace and rest, not insecurity and fear. If God has given it to you, no one can take it from you. No one can close a door that God has opened to you. Let's interpret what the statue symbolizes. 
And as we interpret the stat- what the statue means, we're going to follow the traditional approach, which almost all biblical scholars have followed through the history of the church. We follow this approach because it's supported by chapters 7 and 8, the visions of chapters 7 and 8, and also because it has the most solid New Testament support. And it's really amazing how in this dream, in its interpretation, how God, in, with impressive detail, he outlines what will happen in the centuries following the kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon, of course, emerged in the 7th century, but this This dream, it talks about the 6th century, it talks about the 4th century and the 1st century before Christ. The the gold, the head of gold, Daniel says, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, that's Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. I bet Nebuchadnezzar was happy with that. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. At the top, the most precious of all metals. (laughs) But then there's going to be another kingdom, Daniel says, inferior to you, Inferior in glory, in unity, a kingdom of silver, the the chest and the arms. And this kingdom is named in chapter 8, verse 20. It's the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Came to prominence under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, 539 BC. So a first kingdom, Babylon, a second kingdom, Medo-Persia. But then there's going to be a third kingdom. A third kingdom of bronze, the the waist, the middle, and the thighs of bronze. Chapter 8, verse 21, it's revealed to be Greece. And you'll remember that Alexander the Great, he stormed to world power. And in his 20s, he cried because there were no more lands to conquer. He was controlling the known world. And then there's a fourth kingdom, iron. It just represents its brute force. Verse 40, it breaks to pieces and shatters all things, the Roman Empire. But its feet and its toes are a mix of iron and clay. And that just reveals the the fundamental weakness of human kingdoms. No matter how powerful, there's clay. Even in our language, there's an idiom, right? Feet of clay, it, it represents a point of weakness in a person or an institution that otherwise is powerful and strong. Each kingdom has its own glory. Each kingdom has its own end. You see, God in his sovereignty foresees and guides the rising and falling of human kingdoms throughout history. This is the amazing revelation here that God actually foresees and guides the rising and falling of human kingdoms throughout history. And for the Jewish exiles who were, who were long from or far from their homeland, this should have filled them with courage and hope. Wow, God still has his hand in history. Our God knows what will happen. He knows what the purpose is. We can celebrate. We can walk with confidence and hope in Babylon. It was meant to change their lives. And it should change our lives as well. Will we enter 2016 full of confidence, full of hope, full of faith? Or walking with fear, insecure, doubtful, wondering? observation here. You know, we as humans, we often think that we're getting better and stronger. We live with that illusion. And some write books telling us that this this is true, that we're evolving, we're getting better, we're getting stronger. When you look at the statue as a whole, as a representation of human kingdoms, it's interesting that the kingdoms actually get weaker as you go down the statue. 
there's diminishing glory, that it all ends in division and disintegration. A professor from Stanford University, an American uh, Japanese professor, Francis Fukuyama, he wrote a book, maybe you've read it, The End of History and the Last Man. He wrote this book in 1992. And he makes the point that we are evolving, that we're becoming more honorable, we're becoming more civilized, we're becoming more unified. He argues that the end of history is Western liberal democracy. There you have it. Western liberal democracy, the end of history, apex of our evolution. He wrote the book in 1992. So what had happened? The Soviet empire had just crumbled. It was a time of confidence in the West, of triumphalism. It was pre-9-11, it was pre-Al-Qaeda, it was pre-ISIS, it was pre-2008 stock market meltdown. It was a time of arrogance. End of history. The West. In the vision of the statue, what starts off as gold becomes silver and then bronze and then iron and then clay and it all crumbles. You know, the human kingdoms, they're all temporary, they're all transient, they're all inferior. So maybe God's vision is different than ours. <laughs> what the vision is trying to communicate is that God is the one that gives authority to Babylon and then to Medo-Persia and then to Greece and then to Rome. And whoever is ruling at the time of these kingdoms needs to understand that. And then there's a stone. There's a stone cut not by human hands and it is hurled towards the statue. You were afraid that I was going to throw it, right? And it hits the statue in the feet and the whole statue comes down. It crumbles. It becomes chaff. Like chaff on the summer threshing floor and the wind blows and it's all blown away. Gone. You know what uh, remains in Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar built his famous city? Nothing. Literally nothing. The city was completely covered by dust and sand. There are archaeological digs now. There's a railway that goes by. But it literally turned to chaff. So what kind of kingdom is this that God's building? What's God building? What is that stone and that mountain? Look at verse 35. The stone that struck the image became a mountain and filled the whole earth. So it's, it's going to be a universal kingdom. It's humble. It's obscure in its beginnings. It's like the mustard seed that Jesus talks about. It's like the leaven. It spreads. It grows. It fills the earth. It's universal. This is a thrilling message of Daniel chapter 2 that God's, in the context of world history, God's kingdom will be established. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's a universal kingdom. 
And then secondly, verse 44 of Daniel 2, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This, this kingdom, it doesn't come out of the toes of the statue. It doesn't evolve out of the human kingdoms of the world. It's other, it's not of human invention, it's God's creation. Back to verse 44, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, it's indestructible. It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No earthquake can shake it. Verse 44, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It's all victorious. It will shatter all things. And verse 44, it shall stand forever. It is eternal. So God has revealed something to us. God in his sovereignty has revealed the purpose of all things, the establishment of his eternal kingdom. He revealed that 2,600 years ago. It was true then, it's true today. It's for his glory. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, the second part of the verse. It shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic. And then it, this book continues in Aramaic all the way to the end of chapter 7. Why? Because Aramaic is like English today. It's the universal language. And God wants all people to understand. Get the message that he's establishing his kingdom. What's the stone? What's the stone that's hurled? There's a messianic psalm, Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, the stone is Jesus. (laughs) The stone is Jesus. And when he hits the feet of the statue, the kingdoms crumble, and his kingdom emerges, and it's established forever. Luke 19, Luke chapter 19, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt. He enters Jerusalem on a colt, and the people, they sing. They praise him. They they sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And after that entry into Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. He goes into the temple, and he cleanses it. And says, this is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. The religious leaders, they see what Jesus is doing. They say, by what authority do you do these things? Who are you to enter Jerusalem on a colt and receive praise? Who are you to cleanse the temple? And Jesus responds with a parable. He tells a story. Parable of the tenants. There's a vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard, he leaves the vineyard in the hands of some tenants, some renters. And they are to pay rent, send produce to the owner. But they refuse to pay. So he sends some messengers to get the rent. They beat those messengers and chase them off. So the owner thinks, okay, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. So the owner sends his son And they do the unspeakable. They kill his son. So the owner of the vineyard, he destroys the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. 
At the end of that parable, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then immediately he goes to the end of Daniel chapter 2. And he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the religious leaders, they understand, they perceive that Jesus is talking about them. And they want to grab Jesus. Jesus doesn't allow it at that moment, but he faithfully goes to the cross and he dies. He dies for the sin of human pride, of human rebellion, all of the sins of Babylon. He takes the sins of Babylon upon himself, dies in our our place, pays the price. And three days later, he rises from the dead to reign forever, to establish his kingdom. The religious leaders, for them, Jesus is a stumbling stone. And their kingdom is broken to pieces. Why doesn't the vision refer to empires after the fourth kingdom? Why doesn't it talk about a fifth kingdom, a sixth kingdom, a seventh kingdom, an eighth kingdom? Why does it end with a fourth? Well, for God, the decisive moment in history... It's the moment when Jesus gives his life, his death and resurrection. At that moment, the kingdom of God is inaugurated and it continues to grow and will fill the whole earth. And so for God, from his perspective, there only is one kingdom, the kingdom of his son. Amen? And if we're followers of Jesus, then we're a part of that eternal kingdom. See, for God's People, this is a day of rejoicing, a day of hope, a day of confidence. Listen to these verses often quoted by Jesus. Back to Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so these last days are God's days. They're days for us to rejoice. To walk with confidence and hope because God is establishing his eternal kingdom. It is filling the earth. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. No need for fear, insecurity, doubting, anxiety. Why? Because history's in God's hands, he's building his kingdom. We're urged to choose to invest our lives in the unshakable kingdom of God. God has revealed the end of history. We know where it's going. We know our purpose. We know what God is doing. And so we don't invest in the chaff-like kingdoms of this world. What are we investing in? I've been asking myself this question this week. What am I investing in? Am I investing in things that will remain forever? Things eternal? Love for God, love for people. Am I investing in the internal kingdom? Or am I investing in things that will be blown away? One of the indicators is what we lose sleep over. Why did I lose sleep this week? Why did you? What bothers us? What concerns us? Let's choose the kingdom of God. What was the message of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2? Well, the kingdom had been given to him by the God of heaven. And he was to rule well, steward what God had given him. He was to worship God. How does he respond? Look at verse 46 of chapter 2. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar, he falls prostrate, makes a sacrifice. He worships the God of Daniel, says, hey, God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, keeps his word, honors Daniel, gives him the whole province of Babylon. Daniel thinks of his friends, probably because they're his friends, and secondly, because they were with him praying for the revelation of the mystery, and so he remembers his friends, and they are honored as well. So my question is, has Nebuchadnezzar now converted? Is he now a worshiper of the only God, the God of Israel? No. He had his moment of worship, his moment of awe, He was happy to put Yahweh on the God shelf among all of his other gods. He's a polytheist. He worships many gods. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 3, he's already building a statue to himself in his kingdom, a big gold statue. And God will continue to do his work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but at this moment, he has not yielded his life to God, the true God, the God of Israel. Why are we sometimes like Nebuchadnezzar? Why are we prone to put ourselves at the center, to worship ourselves? The humanist uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, he wrote this a few centuries ago. Man is man's God. The beginning, middle, and end of religion is man. It's kind of brutal, isn't it? Except by the grace of God, we live that. We... We live life thinking that it's actually about us and about the things that we're going to build in this life. We think that's what it's about. That's our purpose. The the Times, a newspaper in London, they threw out a question a number of years ago. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? There's a good coffee time question, right? So what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, he is a British philosopher, writer. He wrote to the Times, and this is what he wrote. Dear sir, I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. He's right. I am. You are. We're self-centered. We put ourselves at the center. And we're building our own stuff. And we compete with each other to build our own stuff. To build our kingdoms. That's why Jesus came. (laughs) That's why he died. Because we'd never save ourselves. We wouldn't figure it out. We're too blinded by our own selfishness. That's why Jesus died and took the sins of Babylon upon himself. Our sins. As Peter proclaims, Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus and Jesus only. Now, we can walk out of here 
and choose to continue to live for ourselves. We have that choice. We can continue to build our own kingdoms. God will give us a time to do that. But the brutal truth is that whatever we build to ourselves, our own kingdoms, it will become chaff and it will be blown away. It may not happen today or tomorrow, but the day will come when it becomes chaff and it will be gone. Like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And Jesus will be a stumbling stone to us. We will continue to trip over him. Or, or Jesus can become our cornerstone. He offers himself as our cornerstone, as our foundation. We can actually enter his eternal kingdom. We can live as his children, sons and daughters. We can experience the fullness of life in him. He gave his life so that we might be free from the sins of Babylon. So that we could walk in freedom for his glory. You see, by the vision, we're urged to choose the king of kings. And that entails, that means complete surrender to Jesus. So I ask myself, I ask you, what needs to topple in our lives so that Jesus might be Lord over our lives? So that he might truly reign as king of kings. His kingdom has already been inaugurated. His kingdom is being built. His kingdom will last forever. He will reign forever. Will we give ourselves to those things that are eternal, that will never be blown away? The eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. May we choose him. Amen? Amen.